Welcome to the podcast, The Objects That Made Us. I'm Amy Sim. In every episode of this podcast, I will be inviting a guest to share with us a personal object and the story behind it. These stories will offer glimpses of Singapore's past, weaving together a tapestry of our collective memories. Today, we are at Idly Mosbit's home. We are so fortunate to have Idly with us today. And she's going to share with us an object that is of sentimental value for her. Welcome to the show, Adeline. Thank you so much. Can you introduce yourself briefly? My name is Idly Mosbit and I'm actually a theatre practitioner. But more than that, I'm also a senior lecturer with the Centre for Transcultural Studies in Tamasic Polytechnic. Wow, yeah, we know Atli for all her theatre performances and also on TV, movie. She's a very esteemed theatre, TV presenter, actor, playwright, and also the recipient of the National Arts Council Young Artist Award for Theatre in 2008. That's right. So Atli, what do you have for us today? Today, I am going to be sharing my late father's old EP record from the 1960s. And this is with his band called Les Cafilas. Oh, that's a very exotic sounding name. Can you tell us yeah, what does that actually, mean? Actually, Les Cafilas, or rather Les Cafilas, if you do it in the, you know, French Moroccan way, means that a caravan of people, Cafila, a caravan of people, yeah, and they should be nomads. Lah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you know why they chose? his name? I really don't know. I guess they kind of, you know, love the idea of it being very exotic, a bit Arabic sounding, yet still very cosmopolitan because it's, you know, using the French lay. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your father and his passion for music? My father's name is Muhammad Saleh bin Taib. He is also known with his stage name, Saleh Mosbit. Hence, my name, Idli Mosbit. Mosbit became our family name. When he was younger, he was very interested in music. He became a drummer for a pop yeye band. Pop yeye means like circa 1960, we have Malay boys forming up pop yeye bands to kind of put out Malay music, very modern Malay music, as opposed to the lagu Melayu Asli that people know of or the Malay pop that people know of, they started this brand of music called Pop Ye Ye. Why is it called Pop Ye Ye? I think, right, the Ye Ye comes from the Beatles songs. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess that's the Ye Ye that, you know, people remember. Ah, that's the kind of music. And it's exactly that music. When we think of Beatles pop, that's the kind of singing and the kind of music. So that's how the Malay groups call it pop ye ye to actually kind of brand that genre of music. Mm, that's so cute. Mm. And when did your father start to form a band and create songs? I think as early as maybe like 1960. One sixty-two, he would be about 18 years old. So he had gathered some of his kampong friends. He used to live in Lorong Limau. And that's somewhere, I think, near Balestia, Wampo. That kampong is actually very multi-ethnic. And also, that's also why my father is actually very multilingual. He speaks Malay, English, a bit of Tamil, and of course, all the Chinese dialects. So this guy, my late father, could speak 
Hokkien, Cantonese, a bit of Mandarin, you know, and Hakka. So there you go. It's really quite exciting lah, for him at that point of time. So gathering some friends, they started this group. And the best part is they don't really actually started singing Malay songs. They first started doing Beatles covers. He thinks like he was going to fashion himself like, you know, the Ringo star of his who's a little bit quirky and cute. So that's how it all started. But besides being the drummer, he's also the manager of the band. I was looking through some materials and I saw that in 1961, Cliff Richard and the Shadows were performing at Gay World. And it seems like that concert was very, very influential, actually. And it was, you know, brought this passion for forming band to height and lots of uh, local young boys were really into it and starting to form lots of bands. Did you remember that? From yes, I think that's what that? he told me. Cliff Richard was also one of those, besides Cliff Richard, he was very heavily influenced by Tom Jones. And then of course, definitely Big Time, The Beatles, Rolling Stones. So these were the bands, but they opted for, you know, a more decent look. Beatles was kind of decent at that point of time, you know, they were all dressed in jacket suits and all. So yeah, you're right. That was the very influential time. That's also when we have bands like The Quest. And I recall my father said that The Quest came from Queenstown Technical Secondary School. And he was actually, happened to be, I think, in one of his secondary school year, he was there because he had just came out from St. Joseph Institution and then went to Queenstown because of some living arrangement that happened. And so he was much closer to Queenstown. And that's how he also got to know the quest. So in that sense, yes, they were. The scene was actually very, very happening. And because of that, that's also why you got a lot of these Malay bands actually coming up with hits. They had the Swallows. They had Siglap Five, the Rhythm Boys. These are your pop yeye groups from the past. So my father's group, Lake of they had a few, I think, singles that were quite recognized. For example, Ikan Toda. Ikan Toda just mean, I think, the swordfish. Yeah? The song is actually a, a historical melody about Ikan Toda attacking Singapore. So it's kind of cute. It's actually historical, kind of. People could identify with it. And of course, it's got a nice ditty to it, nice music and hook to it where people actually could sing along. So in terms of their style of their composition, their music, you said that they were influenced by Tom Jones, by the Beatles, Cliff Richard, incorporate some of the kind of local flavors or do they, does it sound just like the Western music or how was it? It was nice because it is very much, the foundation is really, really the Beatles kind of heavy guitars, the kind of songs that you get from Rolling Stones. It's very heavy guitar. Hence, the word kugiran, if you think of the word kugiran, is actually the shortened form or the, you know, the majmuk of the words kugiran means 
means kumpulan gitar rancak. So, kumpulan gitar rancak, they kind of put the word together and shorten it to become kugiran. And when people talk about kugiran, they're not talking about just singing groups. They're talking about groups with really heavy guitar sounds, like not the trash metal type, but these are really guitar strumming, lots of electric guitar being used. So, hence, I think that's the part where it really kind of diverts itself from, you know, the conventional Malay pop songs of those years. The late 1950s and the early 60s, we saw a lot of songs that were done by people like Shaw Brothers, Piram Lee and his group. So they were very much influenced by songs like The Platters, those kind of still very much the song type of the early 60s. So when this group influenced by British groups, even the Americans, the Beach Boys, yeah? So that's the kind of song that you get. I don't think it had a lot of Malay influences, but because the lyrics, the songwriting style is still very Malay, yeah, it was a very good mishmash, I think. Hmm. So Kugi Run is like a genre, yeah? Yeah. And is that uniquely uh, Singapore? And I guess at that time is Malaya. Yeah, it's definitely Nusantara. When you say Kugiran, people know them as not just singing group because a kumpulan is just a group, right? But Kugiran just means that they would have guitars. They would be not just your boy band of singers, but more like band boys. Yeah. So I guess the unique part of it. They were not just doing music, but they were kind of generating a style, you know, in terms of their performance style, their outlook. Uh, yes, can you describe a little definitely. bit about, you know, what kind of clothes would they be wearing for their performances? So I recall my dad telling me that, you know, they were scrim and save, go to the tailors and buy lots and lots of a certain material that they like. And they will go to the tailors to get their full suit jackets kind of thing going. So think of the early days of Beatles when they were wearing their suits. And even now, I think Bruno Mars and his group, they're big on, you know, wearing the suits. And that's the kind of look that they were going for. It's definitely not your 70s rock where people were more grungy, people wear jeans. No, they were all suited up with ties and everything. And of course, also in a way, following that kind of trend, yeah, Beatles were being hounded by their groupies. Yes, those were the days when this boys. People will surround them, who will want their autographs, take photos and what have you. So there you go. It was quite a very hip and happening time, you know. But again, these are kampong boys. So you can imagine it must be quite a thing, right? To go to work in the morning and then after that, come back, shower, get ready, put on the suit and get out of your house in the evening to play at your clouds, looking all fine and dandy. So that's the kind of feel I think they would have gone through. The last time I spoke to you about this particular outfit that your dad put together for Ikan Toda. Can you tell us a little bit about okay. that? Okay. I don't know whether any one of you remember this. You must be really old to remember this. Do you remember that the Singapore 20 cent coin from yesteryear was actually the garfish or the swordfish? The 20 cent coin, the upside of the coin is actually a picture of the swordfish. So what my dad did was he created the suit and everything but one of the things that they did was they used 20 cent coins to make buttons. 
They also sold up 20 cent coins together to create a belt. Okay, that was the thing that got them into the police station because you shouldn't be doing that. No, you shouldn't be doing that. That's definitely an offense to actually use our money. Money is not to be altered in any way. So that's what happened. They got called in for this very, uh, what I would say, creative use of 20 cent coins as buttons. So they got called in into the police office and yeah, they were warned to destroy it, to make sure that they don't do that anymore. So I think that must have been quite an interesting phase of their lives. Yeah, <laughs> It also shows that how resourceful they were, right? In a way, definitely. Well, I would like to think that my creative genes really came from my dad. I don't know this kind of jackets and this kind of outfits will be the kind of thing that people will auction off if ever we can find it. I don't know where it is now, but yeah, it will be of sentimental value, definitely 20 cent coins, yeah, as buttons. That's amazing. And listening to the music again today, how does it feel to you? Like, how does it sound like? Does it sound like, you know, a bit dated or... Okay, I really do have to salute them for their music making. During that time, we didn't have all this kind of technology to enhance music, to enhance sound, to create effects. I mean, listening back to Ikan Toda now, I would say it's actually very modern. As a matter of fact, it doesn't sound very dated. I think we could easily do a remake and someone might say, wow, what an original sound. That's it's a very interesting way of, you know, putting music together. That's the magic of that era, I think. Their songs are actually very, very, I think, singable. The tune is great and also great writing, I think. Yeah, so I don't know whether there's anyone out there who, you know, might one day want to do a cover of that song and remaster or rearrange it to a more modern feel. I think we will find it that, yeah, that song is really still very much relevant. Mm. Yeah. And where did they perform during that time? So they started out actually more performing for weddings. Yeah. So they started out as wedding bands. But as they go and perform, a lot of people actually tell them, Hey, why don't you go and perform for this and that? And that's how they got first into radio. So they went into the studio, did some performance for radio and that how they kind of got their deal with EMI. Under EMI, they have, I think, managed to come up with maybe three or four EPs and songs like Biarla, the Ikantoda, and there's other songs also sung by their female lead vocalists. Yeah. So these are songs that were later became, I think, quite known amongst the Malays in Singapore, Malaysia and Brunei, I think. Yeah. Did he perform in Malaysia as well? They did. They did some what they called their touring show, but I don't think they did like a multi-state kind of thing. I think they did once in JB and maybe another one in Kuala Lumpur. I think they were kind of like thinking of doing, uh, you know, multi-state kind of, but they didn't get to it. But I guess their songs are still, I think, very much recognized in Malaysia. Yeah. How many records do they So other EPs, I think they manage, I think, about four, four of these EPs. I don't think they have a full, full records, but, I think they released 
four ETs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I actually only have one mm-hmm. that an antique collector managed to kind of save for me and pass it to me. So I feel very, very happy that I managed to at least get one. Did your father not leave all his records? Something happened in, I don't know which year was it? Was it 1967 or 1968? There was a very big flood in Singapore and all his music records were gone during that point of time. A lot of photos, a lot of documentation, clothes, records that were swept away by the flood. And at that point, he has already kind of stopped playing music. I think the timing that he played music was early 60s to mid 60s. That was, I think, a span of most probably six years. And then by the time he stopped, he had already gotten a full-time job as a postman. And he was also by then starting to be involved in soccer. He's actually a very well-rounded person. As much as he plays music, he's got his job. And of course, he also does sports. So he is actually a certified coach and referee with the Football Association of Singapore. So yeah, by then, he had already stopped playing music. And when all those things, all the paraphernalia got missing, I think for him, it's like, oh, okay, that's the past that I have left behind anyway. So all that we had left when I was growing up as a first child, he made me listen to all this, his Beatles, his Rolling Stones and music that he was very influenced by. So the only time I get to listen to the songs is when last time when we had radio shows where we could ask the DJ to play, can I request a song? I would like this song from this group. That was actually the only time we could get his song played and, you know, we get to listen to. So it's only in the later years when we had YouTube, when we had, I don't know whether you remember VHS, you know, we could actually record them. So when we have those shows, that's when we record them and we get to hear, that's that song, that is that song, you know, being sung by the singer Hasna Harun. So that's the kind of thing that we had. So only now it's been much easier to actually kind of go to YouTube and pull out some of his songs and listen to them again. Oh, that's really interesting. So your dad never talked about those days when he was like a celebrity, those touring days, performing days. He actually downplayed it very, very well. What he has done is he will tell us his adventures, his stories. For example, one of the songs, I remember this very clearly. He said, you can copy somebody's song, but remember, do not go beyond eight bars. (laughs) (laughs) Then I was like, Dad, that's plagiarizing. I said, no, it's not plagiarizing. We are taking sample, sampling, right? So he said, don't go beyond eight bars. So what do you mean? Okay, listen to this song. Listen to this song, okay? Hasna Harun sings. Biarku bersedih. Let me bring it up tempo. It will be, oh yeah, I tell you something. And I'm like, oh yeah, I tell you something. Biar ku bersedih. Dad, that's amazing. That's <laughs> so, brilliant. 
then he was like saying, okay, so there you go. That's the kind of thing that you can actually look at arts or, you know, the creative world. We tend to take from other people. So do not think it's in silo, never. Arts is always about being resourceful, inspired by other people. I'm like, okay, okay, get it there. Yeah. So he always kind of downplayed all this kind of brilliance and the kind of popularity. So it will only be much later in my life when I go out into the world because I do my performances and I do my writing and people see my name and they will go like, wait a minute, Mosbit. I know a Mosbit from a long time ago. I'm like, okay, what do you mean? You are the daughter of S. Mosbit. I'm like, yeah, how do you know that? I mean, do you know my dad? Hey, your dad, you know not. Last time, your dad is a celebrity, you know. I'm like, serious? That dad of mine, you know, at home with his kind pelikat walking around? Yes. So that was the start of me like, okay, dad had a life that we didn't know of or rather he had downplayed that life of his. So you went through a kind of a discovery process to learn about a side of your dad that you don't see at home. You don't see that because you would never think of your dad. So there will be other people who said, hey, wait, 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 I show you. Uh, okay, this is your dad, you know, from last time. And I'm like, ooh, serious? That was good looking. I'm like, okay, la, maybe I've got some jeans, a bit of his jeans, you know, I'm not saying that I'm pretty or what, but okay, la, okay, got features, got features. So then somebody will say, hey, you know, no, I just found out, right? Your dad was in this movie. Then I'm like, what movie? It's some 60s movie, okay? I will show you. He was playing his drums in the band and this, you go and check the clip out. Then it was later that I was like, yeah, that has ever said before that, you know, he was, his band, Le Kafilas, was featured in the movie. You know, you kind of heard about it and you think like, uh, really, whatever. But when actually someone else tells you and you actually see the actual footage, then I'm like, wow. So, yeah, I think that's humility on my dad's part that he doesn't kind of put himself out there as, you know, this and that. No, he was just our dad. He was just back at home and we were very happy as his children. But having learned that in the later years was really something for me. So I certainly think the Mosbit DNA or genes is in you. You know, your dad is a very resourceful performer, talented, and yourself as well, you know, with your very distinguished career in the arts. I really, I would really like to claim that creativity, always thinking out of the box, really do come from his DNA, his genes. Because even when he was doing things like sports, he was telling me one of the ways for him to work with his football team because he was coaching Iraja a football club. So what happened was that he said, you know how the boys, they're not even looking at each other when they're playing their soccer. They're just so concentrating on chasing after the ball. They're not communicating. You know what I did to them? I switched off the stadium lights at night so that they can only hear each other and call out each other for the ball. So I'm like, 
wow, that's actually kind of creative. That's a really great way of making sure the footballers actually communicate with each other. I could use the same kind of technique in my theatre making because sometimes on stage, because people are so intensely concentrating on their words, they're not really reacting on a very natural basis. So that, thanks, that's really a great idea. So those kind of things really, really make me realise that, yes, the old man had really quite a genius mind to come up with all these things. That actually, when I think about it, he's very resourceful, quite a troubleshooter, so great. And how did your dad think about you going into theatre and performing arts? Did he encourage that? Oh my God. There were like, I think a few years in my life where my mom stopped talking to me because dad was always on my side, encouraging me to do whatever I wanted to do. Because when I told him, you know, dad, you know what? I didn't get a place in NUS. I opted to do theater in NUS. I didn't get a place there. And then I told him, you know what? Maybe that I think, right? They don't deserve me. I need to be somewhere else. I need to learn theater somewhere else. That can I choose to go overseas? And he was like, sure, that'll be good. If you really think this is something that you really want to do and it is something that you really want to pursue in your future, do it. So that's a kind of encouragement that I get. And mom was always like, oh, your daddy's girl. That is always going to, you know, give in to whatever you want. So for many years, whenever I say, Ma, can I do this or that? No, you don't talk to me. Please ask your dad. Ask him because, you know, he will be the best person. So for a while, she was just very, very salty about the fact that I could, yeah. I was a first child. I guess I had a lot of leeway for that matter. That was always encouraging. And I think that saw that I could carry a tune. I could, you know, perform on stage. And he saw that very early on, as early as maybe 11, 12. You know what dad will do? Every Christmas, right, there will be... Christmas parties all over Singapore in the community centers, right? So, you know what my dad will do? Maybe, you know, that time he thinks of me like Beyonce or something like that. He will like, okay, so you got your Christmas song ready? So I said, yeah. Are you always seeing Rudolph what? You know, so I said, okay, okay, Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer. Okay, so, okay, we're going to pay $2, then you will go to this party. And then at the party, you're going to sign in for the talent time. So I said, sure, okay, let's do that. So th I did that. That few weekends when they had all the Christmas parties, I will be there and I will sing my rendition of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and every time get number one and get all these prizes, book prizes and also, you know, some cash money. It's really, really just money for me to enjoy, you know, buy candies, buy new clothes, that kind of thing. And I have stacks and stacks of games, you know, those board games because these were prizes that were given. Yeah, so those were the kind of things that my dad will kind of encourage. So seeing me going into the arts, that's something that I think he is really, really very proud of. Yeah, I'm sure your dad would be so proud of you. And, you know, even though that he's not performing, he stopped his music career. I think he continued to sow that seed in you and to see you blossom in the arts. Mm. Thank you so much, Adli, for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Amy, for having me here. The Objects That Made Us is produced and hosted by Amy Sim and Yap Xiao Chong. Music and sound design by Mandrik Tan. Translated by Lim Wanwen and Lim Hui Sin. 
This podcast is made possible with the support of the National Heritage Board. Thank you for listening.